The book of 2 Kings, chapter 1. 2 Kings, the first chapter. If you need a Bible, I hope you'll check the pew near at hand. You'll find one. Need to consult the index. That's no shame. Just find the book of 2 Kings and the first chapter. I'd like to begin reading today in verse number 1, and we'll read down through the 16th verse of 2 Kings, chapter 1. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Now therefore thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, thou shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. And when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, and said unto us, Go turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And he said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, He was an hairy man, and girt about with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of an hill. And he spake unto, the, unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again also he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto him, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And he sent again a captain of the third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight." The angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. And he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Our Father... We thank Thee for the day that Thou hast given to us. We thank Thee, Lord, for sufficient health and strength in order that we might assemble ourselves to this place of divine appointment, for Thou hast told us 
to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And Father, thank you for your grace which is put within our heart, the ability to conform to thy will and to be in the house of worship this morning, even to want to be here, to wait upon thee for the blessing of thy word, for the blessing of the music and the fellowship as we come here to worship you. I pray, Father, in this next little while now as we gather around thy word in that special sense in which thou hast appointed, for thou hast told us to preach the word, that the Spirit of God might enable the preacher, give to me, Father, a liberty, a freedom, an ability to speak from a warm heart and to communicate the message that you have given to me this morning in the power and liberty of the Holy Spirit. Anoint every listener, Father, so that no one goes away today untouched particularly considering the subject at hand. May our hearts be tender. I pray, Lord, that in that way that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish, you'll meet our needs and work in our hearts to show us the thing that we can do and that you want us to do in response to this message as individual Christians. And Lord, if there's somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus as personal Savior, help that one, Father, to come to you today. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. We are once again observing in our church, as we have any number of years now in January, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. As I was calling your attention to this fact earlier in the announcements, the tragic Supreme Court decision in the United States of America that legalized abortion in our land took place. It's known as Roe versus Wade in January of 1973. A little math, if it's correct math, will tell us that that's 28 years ago. Using the rough figure of a million and a half abortions performed in the United States of America every year for 28 years, we realize that we are now approaching 42 million, if not more, babies whose lives have been legally extinguished in our country. I think it's becoming clearer and clearer, and I have a little different type of a message I want to bring to you this morning, but I think it's becoming clearer and clearer the more distance that we find ourselves from Roe versus Wade and what we're seeing take place in our land that America is very dangerously and precariously positioned today on what I've termed a slippery slope in the message. We find ourselves experiencing in our country in this day the highest rates of suicide that we've ever known. And we find ourselves moving even more rapidly towards the legalization, the normalization of other practices that flow from logically speaking, ultimately they do flow from the decision that was made 28 years ago. I'm speaking, of course, of such practices of infanticide, physician-assisted suicide, and euthanasia. America finds herself in that position today for two simple reasons, and they logically follow the one from the other. The first is because we find ourselves in a position in this nation today that we have a disregard for God across the land. As saith the scripture, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And having no proper respect and no proper regard for God, as once we did in this nation, when in God we trusted and God we feared, we have grown less and less to esteem and to regard and to respect those things that God, with his own divine stamp of approval, has said are sacred. Chiefly of which this morning, of course, is life. It's interesting to see that unfold in this story this morning. We see the slippery slope, and we see it exemplified in the nation of Israel. We see in the life of this man Ahaziah embodied a society that did those very things that I've pointed out a moment ago. First of all, a society which was guilty of a disregard 
for God, and then ultimately a society which was guilty of a disregard for those things that God highly esteems and that God has said are sacred. Think for a moment about this man Ahaziah. We know a little bit about who he is. Verse number one mentions the name of Ahab. And though we're not given genealogy here, we realize that this man is the successor of Ahab and Jezebel, and well, he follows in their train. They are famous in the scripture. Ahab, perhaps the most famous of the ungodly kings that the northern kingdom of Israel ever experienced, and his wicked, horribly idolatrous heathen wife Jezebel, who brought Baal worship into the land. They're infamous in the scriptures, and now his son follows in his train. Unfortunately, he truly follows in his train, and while we have not all the details of this man's life, we certainly see enough here to know he was a chip off the old block. When in a time in his life, God may well have been trying to get his attention. The scriptures tell us he fell down through a lattice work. This might be something akin to you doing some spring house cleaning at home and doing some window washing, and if you have newer windows, I guess maybe the law requires, I'm not sure, but they have the little tabs at the bottom that tell you that screen, even though it has little gigs on the side to keep it lodged and in the bottom, don't depend on that to safely keep you inside. If you put your weight against it, you're going through that. So whether it was something in the floor or more likely something that was covering a window, this man Ahaziah fell down through it, and as a result of this fall, he protracted some sort of illness, some sort of disease, some sort of sickness. He was afraid as to whether or not he was going to live. So as I say, at a time when one would conclude that God was trying to get his attention, you know, many people are hard until God has a way of getting our attention. And nothing gets a person, generally speaking, more quickly than to realize that we are mortal and that we may be facing our last days on this earth. This man apparently realized this, but so hard was he, so profane was he, so ungodly was he, so lacking in respect for the true God of Israel was he, that he had the audacity to send messengers to the heathen God, the Philistine God, in the city of Ekron, Baalzebub, to inquire as to whether or not he would recover of his illness. God wasn't going to let that go unanswered and sent the old warrior, Elijah the Tishbite, the fellow with the leathern girdle. I don't know whether he was hairy or not. Our scripture says a hairy man, but I think it's referring more to the garment that he wore. I suppose we'll have to get to heaven to find out whether he was hairy or not. But one thing's for sure, an encounter with him, if you were on the wrong side of the table, that was hairy. That much we can be sure of. He met this man. He, met, he did not mince words, nor was he a man of many words. He simply said, is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you've sent to inquire of Baalzebub, above the God of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but thou shalt surely die. Beloved, what he heard that day was more certain than what a man hears when a man stands before a judge. And in some instances in our nation today, this still happens. A man is sentenced to die for the crimes that he has committed. But interestingly, there's still no real sensitivity. There's still no real remorse. There's still no repentance because, and you need to see this so that you don't misunderstand the story. What he does at this point is, he sends when he realizes who it is. It's the old nemesis. Don't you remember how when Ahab finally met Elijah? 
He said, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? So, as I say, this son is a chip off the old block. It's the old nemesis. Right away, when he inquired, what type of guy was this that would come up to the messengers of the king, stop them in their tracks, tell them to go back home and give the king a different message? Who would have such boldness? Who would have such audacity? And then when he heard the description about the leather garment and all the rest, he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And we remember how his, his father proclaimed that he hated him. And this man had the same type of an attitude. And so what does he do? He sends a captain and his 50. Well, he must have had some regard in a certain way, at least, for Elijah, but not the right kind of regard. 50 men to take one man. But circumstances are different now, and Elijah was no longer at the brook Cherith, hidden and sequestered and protected by God out of the wrath and sight of the ungodly king and queen, nor is he in the Gentile city to the north and to the west, Zarephath, where he was with, with the widow lady, but he's unguarded, at least in the human sense, unprotected, at least in the human sense, except that God is always with us, and you and God make a majority. But this man is not on a mission to come to negotiate. He's not on a mission to come and say to the prophet, the king would like to see you. The king is concerned. The king has received your message. And in a spirit of contrition, humbly ask the man of God to come and to intercede with the God of heaven for him and to confess his sins. No, this is a message to seize the prophet and to arrest him with a view to executing him. God's not ready for Elijah to be taken home. You know... The man who was his type, John the Baptist, when he was in prison, it came time and God allowed that to happen. But it wasn't time in this instance and it wasn't what was in God's plan. And you can be sure of something this morning, beloved, when it's not God's time and when it's not protect you. And God protected this man. This is not vindictiveness. This is not inappropriate, sinful anger on the part of Elijah. This is God making a statement. He's making a statement to Ahaziah. He's making a statement to the nation of Israel. Not only do we see the regard of this king Ahaziah for God himself in his attitude towards God and in his attitude towards the man of God, but then it flows from this, the second idea, that there is a disregard and a lack of esteem for those things which God holds sacred. And I'm talking now especially about life. We perhaps could argue and be generous and say that when he first sent the captain the first captain in his 50, to seize the prophet and to arrest him. He was out of line, yes, but he may not have known exactly what God had in mind to do. The fire of God fell and consumed 51 men. 51 men lost their lives for that act of brazenness and that act of blasphemy on the part of the king. Did that tender him? No. No, he was just as happy to run the risk that a second captain in his 50 if he sent them knowing that they very well might receive the same treatment or judgment. But that's not a problem to him because this is not a man who holds life in tender regard and in esteem. The fire of God falls because this man has the same insolent attitude. In fact, we can even note perhaps a worsening of it at the end of verse 11 where he says, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. Elijah is not safe in the hands of this man either. And God protects him. If I be a man of God, he said, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. Now it's a hundred two men who've lost their lives. That's not a problem to Ahaziah either. He sends a third. And beloved, the only reason that this story turns around, 
The only reason that there's a silver lining, the only hope, the only ray of hope that's in this entire story is in the change of attitude that's exhibited in the third man who does fear God, who does respect God, and who does esteem life. And how do we know this? Because when we look at the end of verse number 13, he says, O man of God, after he's fallen on his knees, he says, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. And then in the next verse, it's repeated, let my life now be precious in thy sight. Oh, beloved, how that would transform America today if people would return to the values of God Almighty that life is precious in God's sight. But we've lost sight of that, and we've become a society just like this society because, not because we set out and embarked on a conscious path to disregard life, but because we've set out on a path to disregard God. And once we set out to disregard God, we find ourselves on that precipitous, slippery slope I want to illustrate this for you in America today by giving you or using the example of something that comes right from the doctor of death himself, Jack Kevorkian. Jack Kevorkian, as you may know, right now resides in prison, and well, he should. He's serving a sentence of 10 to 25 years for sending patients into eternity in defiance of the law of the state of Michigan. But, reportedly, Jack Kevorkian takes great encouragement from the fact that recently the European country, the Netherlands, has become the first country since Nazi Germany whose parliament has legalized physician-assisted suicide. They have two conditions that they've set up that are somewhat farcical, but nevertheless. First, a patient must be in unbearable pain. And second, a physician must be consulted. But Jack Kevorkian reportedly takes great encouragement from this and has said as a result of hearing what has taken place recently in the Netherlands that it will probably be only three to five years before such laws appear and are accepted and practices are accepted here in the United States of America. You say, no, it can't happen here. I say the trend bears him out. I want you to consider with me this morning five facts. This is by no means exhaustive but I want you to consider for a moment this morning. Number one, do you realize that we already have a state in the Union, the state of Oregon, that had... We not only have one state in the Union that already has such a law on the books, but we have other states that soon plan to consider it or else whose courts plan to consider the legality of it. California will soon consider such a measure and Alaska's Supreme Court will also consider the issue. Fact number Recent polls indicate that some 60 to 70 percent of the American public, if you believe the polls, but recent polls indicate that some 60 to 70 percent of the American public believes that suffering people should be able to terminate their lives. Fact number three, in Maine, where such a bill was recently defeated, it was defeated by only the narrowest of margins, 51.3% against to 48.7% in favor. Fact number four, the California Nurses Association, which heretofore has been a staunch supporter of patient rights, 
particularly in the face of big HMOs that are seeking to cut their costs of the care that goes to the patient, has reversed itself and has now come out in favor of this type of a practice. And why? Because of their fear that the long-term care of the terminally ill is simply, get this, too costly. I have a question to ask this morning, to which all of this is sort of leading, but this is perhaps as good a time as any to ask it. If the terminally ill are deemed to have no quality of life and not fit to live in our nation, how much does it really take to jump from that to other classes of people that are deemed to have not the quality of life that's worth living and who are not fit to cost society what they cost society? What about the mentally defective? You say, that couldn't happen here. Well, it happened in Nazi Germany where the whole concept led to the point that there were other classes of people who were equally unfit or whose lives were unworthy of the state to support and the cost that it took to keep them alive. And therefore, they moved to a concept that other people, mentally defective and other people, by the way, originally when they came through with all of this type of stuff, the doctors back 50 years ago in the Netherlands refused to do it. Now it's the Netherlands that's moved right over to where Nazi Germany was 50 to 60 years ago. But ultimately, the Nazis referred to different classes of people who were deemed unfit to live as useless eaters. And fact number five, some people in America today who are supposed to know the law or who profess to know the law and who are deemed to be constitutional experts say that the intellectual framework is already in place in America to justify the practice of killing infants. I have an interesting article here that is entitled Lives Measured in Minutes that I took from the November issue of Christianity Today. The author is a, a woman by the name of Cheryl Henderson Blunt. On page six, well, I'm going to read you a little bit of it from the end. Well, this is my copy, so the page number really has no, diff no matter to make, but listen to this. You're talking about different aspects of legislation in this respect, and it says, indeed, several senators have made it clear, these are United States senators, have made it clear that they are willing to extend abortion rights to include the elimination of already born infants. Referred to by Newsweek columnist George Will as the infanticide caucus. I love it. This group includes, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to mention the names, Senators Russ Feingold, Democrat, Wisconsin, Frank Lautenberg, Democrat, New Jersey, and Barbara Boxer, Democrat, California. During Senate debate on partial birth abortion, Boxer would not definitively agree that a born child is protected by the Constitution and cannot be killed. According to constitutional scholar Robert P. George, who teaches political philosophy at Princeton University, the intellectual groundwork, and this is what I was referring to a minute ago, Princeton University constitutional scholar says, the intellectual groundwork justifying infanticide, not abortion, infanticide, is already in place. In his testimony before the Constitution subcommittee, George quoted his Princeton colleague, Professor Peter Singer, and American University professor Jeffrey Riemann, 
both of whom have claimed that newborn infants do not qualify as quote-unquote persons with constitutional protections. Riemann claims that newborns do not quote, possess in their own right a property that makes it wrong to kill them, end quote. How's this guy any different from that guy that said it was okay to kill cops? I want to know, how's he any different? I want to know, how's he any different? The only difference is the cop's 25 or 30 years older. What's the difference? That's where we are in the United States of America today. And I didn't really think to make the connection so much in my message this morning with the message last week, but I think Brother Ed brought it out in his prayer and perhaps was led of the Lord to say this. It's happening because too many people, well-meaning people, I'm not here to be in your face or rebuke, but it happens because too many people don't think it can happen. And too many people sit in churches Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and say it won't happen and don't go to the polls and don't pray and don't vote and don't speak out. That's why it happens. That's the slippery slope that we're on. Now there is an only hope. There is an only hope. And it is demonstrated in the story for us this morning. And in essence, I've really already called your attention to what it is. That only hope is when we turn back to God and when we recognize that God is the one who is to be feared and therefore everything that God tells us is important and everything that God holds sacred is also sacred. Beloved, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. I'm a pastor. And I want to tell you something right now. It's probably true, although I know a number of families represented here this morning have had these experiences. It's probably true that I, more than many people, maybe most people, possibly all people, except for people in medical professions, have seen these situations and, and witnessed them firsthand of people who are in terrible agony and pain and difficulty. I don't approach those subjects without a great deal of oftentimes bewilderment. I don't have answers for people. I just know God has a sufficient grace. But one thing I do know is I, know, I do know that the decision about the giving of life and the decision about the taking of life or the ending of life is only safe in the hands of a God of infinite wisdom and never safe in the hands of fallen men. It may be that within the limited parameters of our wisdom we see situations sometimes that we don't understand why God allows them to go on. I don't have those answers for you. There may be times, and I have been witness to this, I'm sure that even there have been times when my thinking has run this way where I have commented on the mercy of God in intervening in a situation because it was clear enough that a person was suffering and perhaps I as well as the loved ones were praying that God would take them home and end their suffering. But that decision's in God's hands and the minute you put it in the hands of a doctor, the minute you put it in the hands of nurses, the minute you put it even in the hands of the individual himself, you have put a decision that only God has the ability to really know what's right and you've put it in the hands not of people who are all-knowing, not of people who have God's perspective, and not of people who are not tainted by sin. You've put it in the hands of fallen men. And it has repeatedly happened when we have gone down this road in societies around the world. It's something for great alarm. It's something for great cause. We need to go back to the philosophy and to the conviction that Job had. Job was a man who found himself confronted with horribly tragic news that his children and his possessions had been taken away from him. 
And Job's response to it was, Naked came I forth from the womb, and naked shall I return. Thither the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave. You know, God's the only one who has any business determining about those types of things. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. I don't think it's wrong for us to pray. I don't think it's wrong for us to ask God to intervene in situations, but you handle that prayer like you handle every other prayer. When you really don't know the mind of God, you say, if it be thy will. What can we do about this? Because we're on dangerous territory. We're on mighty thin ice in this nation today. Well, I, for one, believe that there's always hope. I believe that the hope is shown to us in this story that if we turn back to God, if we reiterate in our personal lives and in our public life a regard for God, what will logically follow is a regard for the things that God holds sacred and God holds dear. But this is what's happened to us in America. I say it again, we didn't set out to start killing babies. The problem with America started a long time before the Roe versus Wade decision. It started when we started moving away from God and forgetting God. And the wicked shall be turned into hell and the nations that forget God. But I have a couple of practical things, and you'll pardon me if I mention them in the conclusion of the message this morning, because I think you don't just end a message without asking another practical question, and that is, what can we do? Well, I realize that politics are always to some extent controversial, and I'm not here to persuade you to embrace a particular candidate or party this morning. That's not my job. But I am here to encourage you and to exhort you in a spiritual sense. So let me give you a couple of things that you might consider praying about. Number one, for the first time in eight years, we have a man set to occupy in six days the highest office of the United States of America who professes to be pro-life. I did not get involved in this year's election before I did some serious study. And I know some of you have different opinions. That's fine. We won't go separate ways on this, I assure you. But one of the first things that I wanted to know was what was the position of George W. Bush with regard to abortion. He's written a book, if you care to, to read it, a position book in which he outlines every one of his policies. He clearly articulates in that book that he is pro-life, opposed to abortion, except in cases of rape or incest. Well, I could wish that he eliminated those exceptions because I think that all life is sacred. But I know one thing, there's a great big difference between somebody who articulates a position like that and somebody who cuddles up and runs as fast as he can to these radical extremist women's group and professes to be pro-choice and has done everything he can to further the practice of abortion in our land. I say, next Saturday at 12 noon, I shall sing the doxology that old Ahab and Jezebel are out of the White House. I wish they were totally out of Washington. In the second debate, George W. Bush was asked what his position was, and he said those words that are not politically correct to say. He said, I'm pro-life. Well, you may have other thoughts and you may have disappointments, and I'm going to tell you here this morning, as I've told you many times before, I don't think any political office or any human who occupies it is the salvation of this nation. There's only going to be one thing that saved this nation, and that is if we turn back to God. 
But you know something? The right kind of leadership can take you a long way in that direction. And I think at the very least, regardless of what your political affiliation and regardless of what your party and regardless of who you voted for in this last election, a guy like that that has the courage to stand up and say, I'm pro-life, he needs our prayers! I've been convicted of something that I want to share with you this morning because I hope that the Lord can pass the conviction along. I think I'm one of those people who prayed a whole lot more after the election than I did before. That is, the election when it should have been decided, November 7th or 8th. I prayed a good bit before, believe me, because I told you I have an understanding and I tried to communicate that understanding to you of what the issues really were this year in this election. But I prayed and prayed and prayed. And then we got into this 36 or 7 day ordeal and I'll tell you, I don't know when I've prayed for a political situation like I prayed about that. I got convicted because I'm convicted to believe that I really shouldn't pray for him any less now that he's in office than I did before. In fact, I think he needs prayer more now that he's in office than he ever did before. I want to encourage you to pray. A man like this needs the support of the prayers of God's people, particularly when it comes time to appoint people to the Supreme Court. If we didn't learn anything else in this last go-round, we should have figured out how important the position is that judges occupy and how important it is just the difference that one vote and one judge makes. And I'm talking about the ones you recount. I'm talking about the votes that judges make, that that's it. We need to pray. I think Secondly, I'm just giving you things that are current, okay? I think we need to pray for the situation right now that surrounds John Ashcroft. I'm not endorsing everything John Ashcroft is or does. But when people in our nation can rise up and attack a man, not really on the basis of his qualification because you can't attack him on that basis, but can rise up and attack him because of his beliefs, his private religious beliefs. Something bad is wrong, and we need to pray that that type of thing will be defeated and defeated handily. Beloved, that is a slippery slope. When the aberrant voices in our society can make so much noise and point to things that really have no relevance to the issue at hand except for the fact that they cross with those special interest groups and what they want to see accomplished and what they want to see done. If we go down that slippery slope, do you realize what his real crime is? Is he's a Christian or a professing one? That's his real crime. And in the liberal dominated politics and society of our day, which claims to be pluralistic and claims to be accepting of all people of all stripes, they do. They accept people of all stripes except Bible-believing Christians. That type of thing is unacceptable. And if you have the ability to pray and if you have the ability to send your email or write your letter, by all means do so, though I thank you, thank you that both of Pennsylvania's senators don't appear to be wavering on this. I have one more thing, and this is probably the most important thing that I'm going to say, and we'll close with this. Not to steal somebody else's phrase, but I think it's a good one. You know, if we're going to change America, the only way we'll change America is one heart at a time. You can pray 
and you should vote, and you should be involved to the extent that you're able to be involved, and as an informed, intelligent Christian, you have every right, just as much right as these people out here that scream and holler and kick up all the fuss. You have every right to make your feelings and your position known, and you should. But you know something? Sometimes what happens is we get out of balance with this thing, and we get the impression that we're going to save America if we elect the right slate of candidates. And we're going to save America if we can just get this guy out and this guy in. Isn't going to happen. Because you're not going to get them all out. It's just like people in liberal denominations that say, well, I see so many sincere people around me. But the seminaries and the denominational structures are infiltrated with apostates and liberals, and you will never change them from the inside out. The only way to really change America is one heart at the time. And you know what? The neat thing about that is everybody can pray and everybody can change America one heart at the time. Because everybody can be involved in trying to win somebody to Christ. And you know, it's an amazing thing. Old Dr. Bob Sr., I still look, treasure the way he used to say this. If the fur rubbed the wrong way, turn the cat around. He also used to say, if you give God your heart, he'll comb the kinks out of your hair or your head. This amazing way he had of putting such sublime and simple truths. You get a man converted and it's amazing. All of a sudden they change. And you get a man genuinely converted or a woman genuinely converted, all of a sudden they change. You don't have to preach politics to them. You don't have to argue with them. You don't have to harangue them. All of a sudden they change. Why? Because the fear of God is now before their eyes. They begin to esteem and respect God for who He is, and esteeming God for who He is and what He is, they begin to esteem His Word, and they begin to esteem those things that God says are sacred with the same value system that God does. And when that changes, watch out. There is hope for America. I'm not going to stand here this morning and be pessimistic and conclude this message with everybody going out of here with some sort of a black cloud hanging over our heads. But I do think as Christians we need to get busy. We need to do the thing that comes to our hand to do. I've tried to give you some practical suggestions. I hope that God is in some of those things. I hope he brings many other things to your mind that you can do and that I can do. But don't forget to pray. And don't forget the way to change people is to reach the heart with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if any man be in Christ... He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Father, the thing that you want us to do as a result of hearing this message this morning, I pray that we'll be willing to do. I don't really profess to know all of what that is, Lord, or all of what you want to use our time together this morning to accomplish. I just know, Lord, I love America. I just know like many of these prophets and people that lived in the land of Judah and lived in the land of Israel in those days, hearts were broken because they saw the toboggan slide upon which their nation was. And Lord, there are things we can do. And I pray, Father, you'll galvanize us. You'll cause the dry bones to feel the breath of God bone comes together to bone and flesh and sinew begin to attach themselves and when the wind comes and blows then it's a mighty army that stands up on its feet Father there's a lot of deadness 
across America, a lot of deadness in churches, a lot of deadness in the hearts of people that claim to be Christians. Help us, Father, to have a sense of urgency in this church. Communicate where I can't, Lord, how important it is to live for Christ, to be dedicated, to redeem the time, knowing that the days are evil, to snatch as many brands from the burning that we can, to see people around us born again, changed, to have compassion and passion on unwed mothers that don't know where to turn or what to do, to show the love of Christ to people for whom Christ died, to pray for our political leaders, and Lord, to be fervent, to be involved in our church, in our society, as citizens, as Christians. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I want to just ask you to think about this one thing before we give an invitation. You know, the amazing thing about this whole thing is, is to realize how much God loves life. I mean, he loves life so much that he died in the person of his son on the cross of Calvary in order that we might have eternal life. He loves us that much. He loves our unborn children. He loves born children. He loves winos. He loves sinners. He's a friend of sinners. He loves life and he loves people. And he loves you. And he loves you so much that he died that you might have life. He died that you might have eternal life. He died that you might live with him and be with him in glory. My friend, you'll not find someone else who loves you like Jesus does, who will do for you what Jesus can do. He can change your life. He can change your heart. The neatest thing about what Christ does is he changes your wanter. Somebody here this morning says, Pastor, I don't know that I'm a Christian. I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that I'm born again. But I'm burdened about it, and I need to know it, and I don't want to die in this condition. I'll go you this. Include me in the prayer as you close the service today. Now, look, I'm not going to call your name. That's why I ask for our heads to be bowed and eyes to be closed. But is there somebody here this morning that says, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. I couldn't honestly say, if I died today, I know I'd be with the Lord. But pray for me because I need to get that settled and I'm burdened about this thing. Anybody? Slip your hand up. I want to include you in the prayer. Let's stand together. Father, part us with thy blessing. And as I have asked earlier, Lord, give us that wisdom to know how we can respond to what's going on in our society and even from what we heard this morning to use it in our lives in the way that is right and that you deem and see fit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.